you have a Bible with you, uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 15. I was originally going to do 1 through 26 today, and as I was working on it this week, it just seemed like too much, so we're going to split that in half. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, You knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, and that you would um, fill our souls with living water, that the gospel would penetrate deeply into us and satisfy us. Pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things, amen and amen. Well, let me begin this morning with a question. And the question is this, have you ever thought what really makes a love story interesting? Right? Like, I, I think a lot of times guys don't like watching love stories or romantic comedies because they're not that interesting, but sometimes they are. And when they are, what makes them interesting? Well, in my opinion, I think what makes them interesting is that the bigger the gap between the man and the woman, the, the, the bigger the differences culturally or any other way. So, for example, uh, Judy and I watched, I think it was on Valentine's Day, we watched a movie called Marry Me. Have you seen that? It's new. Uh, I think we watched it on Peacock, right? And, and it's Jennifer Lopez is this Hispanic pop star with millions and millions of followers. She's a, she's a great singer. Everywhere she goes, she has this entourage. And on a whim, as almost a publicity stunt, she marries this guy in the audience named school, who's a school teacher, Owen Wilson, who's just mild-mannered nerd. He's a math teacher. They could not be further apart. And of course, the whole movie is like, how are they going to get together? Because you realize they really need each other. And another, another series that we watched recently um, that was recommended to me by, I think it was our music uh, staff, a lot of them, was Crash Landing on You. It's basically a Korean drama. And you'd think, okay, you have a ridiculously good-looking guy and a ridiculously good-looking woman. How are they going to make this interesting? Because, of course, they're going to get together, and, of course, they should be together. Well, 
she's from South Korea, he's from North Korea, right? South Korea is capitalist and free, North Korea is communist and not free, and she is a paraglider, and a freak storm comes and just throws her into North Korea. What's going to happen, right? She's cheeky and smart and beautiful, and he's just sort of like really like, mm, a little bit cold, but he's also very gentle and he's very caring and He's also a North Korean soldier. He's supposed to turn her in. What's going to happen? Who knows? Well, 16 episodes later, you do. (laughs) The point is, I don't like romantic comedies that much. And yet I sat there riveted for 16 episodes. Because it wasn't just that it was a man and a woman who you know are going to get together at the end. It was how are they going to overcome all of these differences in order to get together? And as we look at today's text, interestingly enough, what we see is another love story. We see a love story between two people who couldn't be further apart. You have a woman who had been married five times and was currently single. And because she was married five times in that context, she had to be beautiful. Because she didn't have anything else to offer. She wouldn't have been a virgin after the first marriage. She had to be beautiful, but she also had to have a lot of flaws. Like, what is it that would cause men to divorce her over and over again? So you have a woman like that. On the other hand, you have this single rabbi, never been married, who's gentle and wise, and who also happens to be God, right? They couldn't be further apart. And yet the whole time, you want them to get together. You see her, she's kind of cheeky, and you see him really trying to get beneath all of her cheekiness in order to actually love her. So, with all of that said, um, we're going to look today at the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. She doesn't have a name in this story, but ultimately the um, the Catholic Church made her a saint, and her name is Saint Fotina, if you're interested just in that trivia. It's P-H-O-T-I-N-A. I'm not going to refer to her that way because John doesn't. And... This is really the second encounter in John's Gospel. If you remember the first encounter in John's Gospel that Jesus has with someone is with Nicodemus. And when you look at Nicodemus and you compare Nicodemus to the woman at the well, they couldn't be more different. But I think John did that on purpose because he was trying to show us. Remember in chapter 2, he said Jesus knew what was in the heart of man and it wasn't good. For example, Nicodemus. And if you think, well, Nicodemus doesn't cut it, well, how about this other kind of person, this woman? You see, they couldn't be more different. On on the surface of it, Nicodemus is a man, and he has a name, Nicodemus. Uh, The woman at the well is a woman, no name. He's a ruler among God's chosen people. She is an outcast among a despised people. Nicodemus pursues Jesus at night to guard his reputation. Jesus pursues the woman in broad daylight. In fact, he pursues her at noon because of her reputation. Right? Nicodemus was afraid to lose his reputation. This woman already had a reputation, and it wasn't good. And because of that, Jesus pursues her. And if you want to just sort of summarize it all, Nicodemus was sort of known for his goodness, and she was known for his badness. So you'd think they couldn't be more different, and yet they are really the same at the end of the day, because what, makes, what they share in common is that they both have this thirst for God, and they don't really know how to get there. They both have this thirst for God, and they think that if I use religion, I can get there. Or if I think if I do the right things, or if I say the right things, that I'm going to get there. And Jesus deconstructs Nicodemus, and he deconstructs this woman, ultimately, to save them both. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at 
all about Jesus, right? The first thing is that Jesus initiates, uh, Jesus elaborates, and finally, Jesus postulates. That's for all of you math nerds. Um, he initiates, he elaborates, and he postulates. First, Jesus initiates. Let's look at 1 through 6 real quickly. It says, Now Jesus had learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given his son. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the chapter 4 opens up, and remember, Jesus was baptizing, and John clarifies what Jesus was actually doing, the baptizing, he was sort of supervising it, but he was getting a lot of attention from the Pharisees for this. Jesus noticed that he was getting a lot of attention. Apparently, he didn't want that attention, and so he decided to shut things down in Judea. Judea is where uh, Jerusalem is, and that he would go back home to Galilee. And in order, it says here that he had to go through Samaria. He, he didn't necessarily have to. But it was the shortest way from Judea to Galilee. And so he goes through Samaria in order to get there. And they come upon this well. And he is tired and weary because also Jesus is human. We often forget that. That Jesus was just probably tired. He probably been teaching a lot. And he was tired. He sat down by this well and told his disciples to go get food. We find out later. So it's Jesus by himself sitting by this well. And this woman comes along. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, even if, even if Jesus wasn't God, see, a lot of times we look at these things and we say, wow, Jesus really had a lot of insight there. It, and oftentimes he just had to read the Bible. This is another one of those situations where even if Jesus wasn't God, he would have known that this woman is an outcast. How would he have known that this woman is an outcast? It's because she is coming to, to draw water at noon at the hottest part of the day. If she had any friends at all, she would have gone to draw water in the morning when it was cool or in the evening when it was cool. But apparently because of her reputation, she wanted to go when there was no one at the well. So she went to the well at noon expecting no one to be there. And what do you know? She finds this man, not only a man, but this Jewish rabbi. And he says to her, give me a drink. And what's interesting is, is what he has done is unthinkable, and she knows it. Right? She, she's a Samaritan, but she's not a good Samaritan. Keep that in mind. Jesus says, give me a drink. And she really immediately questions his religion. Right? She says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, and then this editorial comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What she's getting at here, why wouldn't Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? If you remember, when you think Samaria, remember back in the, back in the Old Testament, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was uh, David and Benjamin or Judah and Benjamin, and the rest of it was everyone else. They were the, the northern kingdom. Eventually, the northern kingdom was carried away in around 721 B.C., was, was attacked and carried away by Assyria. And when northern Israel was taken away, Samaria was the capital city, then a lot of other people groups came in. 
and all these other people groups came in and they brought all their gods with them. And eventually Israel, a lot of them came back and when they came back, they, all, they brought back the worship of Yahweh, except they began to start, sort of incorporate a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They weren't sort of pure. And they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law. And so if you were from, if you were from uh, Judah, you would look at anyone from Samaria as being sort of a sellout. And you would look at them as being racially impure, which is interesting if you heard my series on race, because all of Israel was racially impure, if, you mean, if by that you mean mixed races. But they would look at them as being sort of ethnically impure and religiously impure and, and unclean. And they were just not happy with them. And on top of all this, not only was this person that Jesus is talking to from Samaria, and Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but she was a woman of Samaria. <gasps> right? What is wrong with her being a woman from Samaria? Well, women of Samaria, like one, for, for example, the Hebrew Mishnah says that Samaritan women are menstruants from the cradle. Now, why would that be important? Well, see, if, if, if a woman was in that state, that meant she was unclean. And so they would say Samaritan women are unclean from the time they are born, which means anyone who touched a Samaritan woman is unclean and so what that also means is what this woman is basically saying to jesus are you so thirsty rabbi that you're willing to become unclean for a drink you is that what i hear you saying right you jews think we're unclean are you that thirsty that you're willing to ask me for a drink and jesus if i could summarize what he says is no you're that thirsty i'm asking you for a drink because of you not because of me you're the one who's thirsty, not me, right? That he, he didn't basically say, he said, basically says, I'm not, unwi- I'm not willing to become unclean because of my thirst, but because of yours. And we're going to find out that this woman knows a little bit about the Bible, but she knows enough about the Bible to make her dangerous. She doesn't really know the Bible. Because all of what Jesus is getting at here has already been brought up in the Old Testament. Notice what Jesus says in, to her, He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, is that new? Is that new information? Remember when we talked about uh, Nicodemus, when Jesus said you must be born again? That's all over the Old Testament. So when you think of this whole idea of Jesus saying, if you knew who it was, who was asking for a drink, you'd ask me for a drink. If you think about Exodus 17, God's intention from the very beginning was to bear the sins of his people in order that he might have them drink living water. Remember in Exodus 17, there's this story where we pray, it's in Psalm 95, is what that Psalm 95 prayer is about, is Israel was complaining again. And they were complaining about the fact that they didn't have any water. And God was so tired of their complaining, he decided that he was going to judge them. And he was going to make a big deal about it. And so he tells Moses, Moses, get all the elders... And you tell them, you come over, we're going to go to this big rock over here. And oh, by the way, don't forget that big rod of judgment that you have. And you have to imagine the elders thinking, oh boy, we have done it now. We represent the people. We are being taken out to the woodshed with the rod of judgment. We are sunk. And what happens? God says to him, In verse 5 of chapter 17, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff 
with which I gave you to strike the Nile and go. And verse 6 says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Did you catch what happened there? That God told them they went out to 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 this rock and God himself stood on the rock that Moses brought the rod of judgment not down upon the people but down upon God himself and the result was living water came out that the people were saved the people were satisfied the people were able to drink because God took their judgment and that is what's happening here that's what Jesus is getting at here with this woman that basically um, Jesus is, is saying to the woman and another way of what he's saying to the woman is you are, so, you are so unclean that I'm willing to be thirsty for you. In other words, if she says, are you willing to become unclean because of how thirsty you are? He says, I'm actually willing to become thirsty because of how unclean you are. Do you remember what Jesus, one of the seven words that Jesus said on the cross? He said, I thirst. Jesus became thirsty so that we might become satisfied. Jesus became thirsty, and he says to this woman, if you even knew, if you knew what was going on here, you'd actually be asking me for a drink. Remember John chapter 7? Jesus, at the, at the fast festival of lights, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me, and what? Drink. Like, if you want your soul to be satisfied, if you want your, your, your soul to be taken care of, if you want your soul to be uh, quelched, come unto me. And, and Jesus elaborates, this point number 2, the verse 10. Jesus answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus says to her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given. So first thing, if you knew the gift of God, what does Jesus mean there? Well, she knows the Bible, supposedly. The gift of God is what the Jews called the Torah. right? That's, a, that's just another name for the gift of God. So if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the Bible, you would have asked me, you would have asked for a drink, and I would have given it to you. But clearly she doesn't know. And there's two ways she can take Jesus here. She can take Jesus here either literally or she can take him biblically. Remember, that was Nicodemus's choice too. Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus could take him literally or he could take him biblically. In other words, he could look at the whole context of what Jesus was talking. Nicodemus chose to take Jesus literally. How can I enter again into my mother's womb? What do you think the woman does here? She does basically the same thing, right? So if she takes him literally, and he talks about living water, well, living water was water, it was a thing in Israel, and it basically was water that came from a stream or a spring or a river. Basically, living water is water that is moving. And biblically speaking, living water is a metaphor for salvation and healing and satisfaction in God. The call to worship this morning was from Isaiah 55. Do you remember what that said? 
It opens up, come everyone who what? Who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The other passage that we consider is Psalm 46, 5. Let me read that to you real quickly. Psalm 46, 5. Remember this one. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns, the nations rage, and kingdoms totter. His voice utters, and the earth melts. And maybe the most famous or the most encouraging passage about living water in the Bible is from Revelation chapter 22. It's the very end of the Bible. So if you, if, if you wonder, is Jesus just sort of making this up as he goes along, right? Living water has been featured throughout the Old Testament, but living water is what's featured at the very end. Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2 says, Then an angel showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So even through the middle of the city of God, we have this river that is flowing, this living water, that the trees of, the, of life come down and the, its leaves are the healing for the nations. That's where Jesus is, is talking to her about. And instead she chooses to take him literally, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that? I, I imagine her making air quotes, living water. And she says, you don't have anything to draw with. And again, she's questioning his religion. Are you greater than Jacob? Remember, Jacob is the father of Israel. Are you, great, are, you think, are you greater than him? And I love Jesus' answer. He doesn't come right out and say it because he's not like me. But he basically says, mm, as a matter of fact, I am. As a matter of fact, I am greater than Jacob. And as we continue, that's where Jesus postulates. Now, remember what a postulate is. It's basically a, a claim or a, of something that should be self-evident. So when I say Jesus postulates, one, I said it because it rhymes with elaborates. <laughs> but secondly, it's because Jesus is making a, a claim here that, sh that should be self-evident, or at least it's self-evident from the Bible. And so what does he say? Matter of fact, I, I am greater. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, here's what's, what is the difference? Jacob's well is, is intended to deal with life as it is. Jacob's well is intended to deal with life as it is. Think about that. What, how is life, what, what is life as it is? Well, life as it is, is we get thirsty, and we drink, and we get thirsty again, and we drink, we get thirsty again, and we drink. Jacob's well is there. It meets a need. There's no problem with that, but, but it's not enough to quench the needs of, of your heart and your soul. In other words, Jacob's well is intended to deal with life as it is. My water offers you life as it should be. And basically, you and I were created with a longing and a thirst in our souls that nothing on earth can satisfy. And remember, this is a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. As simple as that. 
And at the end of the day, Jesus is saying to her, I'm the one who can quench the thirst that you have for love, for acceptance, for approval, for communion, for security, for purpose. All of these things for which you crave, I am the one who can satisfy them. Which leads to the question, if Jesus is the one who can provide us security, acceptance, approval, uh, purpose, all of these things, why are Christians often so miserable? Why is it so hard to be in church sometimes? Why is there so much conflict? Why is there so much angst? Why is there so much fear in church? One of the things that that was most discouraging to me about the whole COVID pandemic was to watch, A, how fearful Christians were. I mean, you, you don't want to be flippant on one hand, but, you know, we do have a pretty good plan if you don't survive. And yet you would think there was no heaven. You would think there was no eternal life. There was nothing in the end. I need to just, just lock down because there's no security in this life whatsoever. So on one hand, that's discouraging. On the other hand, generally speaking, remember, I've used this a million times with you guys. Remember Charles Spurgeon used to tell his congregation, he says, he says when you think of, of heaven, you should have a huge smile on your face. And when you think of hell, your normal faces will do. Why is that? Why are, why, why are Christians, generally speaking, that I meet, often not particularly happy people? It's because we forget what Israel forgot, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Remember what, what God said to the prophet Jeremiah? It's just in Jeremiah chapter, let me look it up here, Jeremiah chapter 2. God says, Jeremiah 2.13, God says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what is the mistake that Israel made, the same mistake we make? Mistake number one is abandoning the, the fountain of living water. It's actually going to the one who can provide you this living water. So on one hand, we just avoid God. Even if we're Christians, we just, we just go about our business. But even worse is mistake number two, I think, is they hew for themselves broken cisterns. We try and make our own way to be satisfied. We try to make our own cistern, right? A cistern is just like a big uh, pot, I think. Um, and we try to make our own. And we, we, we only can make broken ones that are leaky. And we wonder why we are never satisfied. Well, here's the answer. Stop. Stop trying to, to, to control everything. Stop trying to make everything your own. Stop worrying about this and that and the other thing. And by the way, I'm just as guilty. It's like, oh man, I'm 55. What, what am I, what's going to happen at retirement? Do I have enough saved up? Does everything, you know, is everything going to work out? All these, like... I I could go nuts trying to think through all of that stuff. Or I can say, okay, Tommy, you just need to be wise and do what you can, but you have to trust Jesus with the rest. Man, that's the harder one. And that's what's going on here at some level. This woman is going to have to trust Jesus. She's going to have to realize that he's not talking about this well anymore. She's talking about her and him and whether or not she's going to be in a relationship with him. And I think what's interesting, and I'll end with this, for this week, is that she tries to find a third way, I think. 
Right? So basically the, the, the ways that she's going to be offered are you either receive Jesus as a source of life and satisfaction or reject him as crazy. There's, there's, it's really sort of a binary choice he's going to leave her with at the end. And what she tries to do is sort of find a, a third way, which is basically, honestly, what a lot of us do, what I do sometimes. She basically says in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's sort of like, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but if it's true, just give me some of that water and make my problems go away and I'll be good. Right? I just want to drink some water. If, if, if you can give me some water, those make my problems go away, then that's what we'll do. She, in other words, she wants to use Jesus. She can either know Jesus or she can reject Jesus, but she said, you know, I'm willing to use you to, to get my thirst taken care of. I'm willing to use you so I don't have to come out here to this well every day at noon when it's hot because no one cares. about. I'm willing to use you for that. The problem that she finds out is the problem that you and I will find out too is Jesus refuses to be used. You can't use him. You either have to love him or hate him, but you can't use him. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray as we continue next week in this passage, um, even though we could read the end and we know the end, it still is sort of suspenseful. What's going to happen here with this woman? Will she embrace Jesus or will she reject Jesus? What's going to happen? Will she be transformed by Jesus? We know, thankfully, she's transformed. I pray that you would transform all of us in a very similar way. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.